Hi there, this is our Sunday study. I've been doing Sundays. The Overwhelming Surprise by W.D. Frazee. We're at chapter seven, titled The Anchor. Woe to the inhabitant of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Revelation 12, 12 and 17. So the remnant keep God's commandments, all of them, and have the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. So the remnant church will have a prophet, prophecy, and keep all the commandments. <clears throat> Reading on. The wrath of the devil is sometimes manifested in a roar, in an open attack, but the book of Revelation unmasks also his subtle deceptions. He has many snares, many traps. When a trapper is dealing with an animal that's difficult to catch, he will put a number of traps in different locations around the bait, hoping that in the very effort to avoid one trap, the victim will fall into another. And so it is with the devil. He has many snares, many methods, and he deceiveth the whole world. Revelation 12, 9. 9 yeah, Revelation 12, 9. As a part of the ecumenical movement, in which papists and so-called Protestants, saying so-called because they're not protesting anymore, they joined hands in exalting Sunday. Great miracles are to play their part. He doeth great wonders, so that he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men and deceives them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast. Revelation 13, 13 and 14. So you see that miracles are an important part of the devil's program of deception. We usually think of the power of spiritualism as we read these verses. Spiritualism is the spirits of devils working miracles. Revelation 16, 14. One of their miracles is to impersonate the dead, but they're not limited to that. The greatest false revival of the ages is just ahead of us, as the spirits in the seance chamber appearing as the departed dead. Oh, sorry. And this will be spiritualism, just as truly as the spirits in the seance chamber appearing as the departed dead. Okay. In great controversy, we have a clear prediction of what's ahead. The enemy of souls, he desires to hinder this work. And before the time for such a movement shall come, he will endeavor to prevent it by introducing a counterfeit. In those churches which he can bring under his deceptive power, he'll make it appear that God's special blessing is poured out. There will be manifest what is thought to be a great religious interest. Multitudes will exalt that God is working marvelously for them when the work is that of another spirit under a religious guise satan will seek to extend his influence over the christian world you can find that in the great controversy page 464 most likely the 1911 edition or the 1888 so the great counterfeit revival is just ahead we may even now be entering into it what will you and i do as it grows in extent and in power Notice, 
Multitudes will exult that God is working marvelously for them when the work is that of another spirit. Don't forget, this is what takes the whole world captive. This is the ecumenical idea. This draws all the churches together, Catholic, Protestant, and even the world in a great movement to bring peace and security. But when they have almost succeeded and they say, it is within our grasp, then what about this little group that won't go along? They're the fly in the ointment. They are what's spoiling things. So it's decided to rid the earth of them. Then God will interfere and sudden destruction will come. But before that awful calamity, all the world will have been engulfed in this great religious re revival, quote unquote, great religious revival, which is the counterfeit, remember? <clears throat> Don't think the snare won't be subtle. Don't think it's going to be crude. Jesus says plainly it will deceive, if possible, the very elect. Matthew 24, 24. So we need something extraordinary to prepare us. God has given it to us, no question about it. Here it is, in the old present truth of March of 1850. Now available in these reprints of the Ellen G. White Review Articles, Volume 1, page 11. Hmm. My dear brethren, and I'm going to have to look that up. My dear brethren and sisters, this is a very important hour with us. Satan has come down with great power, and we must strive hard and press our way to the kingdom. We have a mighty foe to contend with, but an almighty friend to protect and strengthen us in the conflict. If we are firmly fixed upon the present truth and have our hope like an anchor of the soul cast within the second veil... <coughs> Excuse me. Our hope is in the most holy place where Jesus is, is interceding for us, I believe is what is being said. We have our hope like an anchor of the soul cast within the second veil. The various winds of false doctrines and errors cannot move us. The excitements and false reformations of this day do not move us, for we know that the master of the house rose up in 1844 and shut the door of the first apartment of the heavenly tabernacle, and now we certainly expect that they will go with their flocks to seek the Lord, but they shall not find him. He hath withdrawn himself within the second veil from them. The Lord has shown me that the power which is with them is a mere human influence and not the power of God. This opens up heaven to us and shows that if our anchor is within the second veil, then we will not be moved by these false revivals and reformations. Let me think about that for a second. Remember, in 1843-44, when, well, 1843, I guess, is when it actually first started to happen, when the message of um, the cleansing of the sanctuary came, and at that time, people thought that it meant the second coming of Christ. It's actually his coming to the Father in the most holy place behind the second veil to receive his kingdom, he, uh, to receive his bride, which is, as you know, what it is. So, um, so our hope is there. So the ones who did not follow them in, they rejected that message. They um, stayed in the first apartment, which where people sin and repent, sin and repent experience in the most holy place. It's where the Lord is working with us to write his law on our hearts and on our minds. That's the second covenant. And he's preparing us to be able to enter into judgment because the day of atonement was the day of judgment. He's preparing us to be able to stand before him in the blood of Christ and 
those churches that would not go in, they uh, they have a false sense of salvation, a false security that once saved, always saved. All they have to do is accept, as they say, Jesus did it all at the cross. Well, he's still doing something right now. It wasn't all done then, or we would it would be over. It's not over yet. He's still doing something. And so um, they didn't accept it. They stayed in the first apartment experience. That's what it's saying here. That's where they stayed. Um, and <clears throat> those of us who have accepted God, the second covenant, and the Holy Spirit is working in our hearts to prepare us to stand in the judgment, we can... We can see by somebody's lifestyle that they're still in the first apartment. Sin and repent, sin and repent. They're not getting the victory in their lives. And where was that? So we are not going to be moved by those false revivals. Those false revivals are going to be telling false falsehoods. There will be no truth in them. There will be deceptions, but we'll know them. For instance, the dead know not anything. And if they're giving messages from the dead we know that they're not a true revival so what is up there within the second veil the temple of god was open in heaven there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament this is the most holy place revelation eleven nineteen. the remnant are looking into the most holy place and what do they see there the ark the testament the ten commandments yes that's the great center the law in the ark in the most holy place that law it's just what this wicked world with all their religion do not want. They want to get away from that law. You'll notice in Revelation, the woman that was clothed with scarlet and pearls and purple and everything, you know what color was missing was blue. And in the Old Testament system, blue, the blue ribbon and the blue uh, are, uh, Ten Commandments were in a sapphire stone of blue. And the pavement when they saw God in heaven was blue. Uh, it was representing obedience to the law of God. And that's missing in that final movement. And uh, they're no blue. They're no obedience to the law. They don't want the law. Yes, that's the great center. The ark in the most holy place. That law is just what this wicked world, with all their religion, do not want. They want to get away from that law. And so Satan is giving them religious tranquilizers of all kinds. Uh, what are those tranquilizers? It's those um, miracles, deceptions, smooth words. But the remnant, instead of drinking the wine of Babylon, are opening their minds to the glory which is shining down from the mercy seat. Yes, the glory of God. Something else is there besides the ark and the law. There's a man standing at the mercy seat. Of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary, and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. Hebrews 8, 1 and 2. So remember that the papacy is the great counterfeit system. It has a priesthood. It's on earth. It has a sanctuary, but it's on earth. It offers forgiveness of sins, but on earth through a human priesthood, it has its law. It's substitute for God's law in the ark and the temple in heaven. The remnant are looking upward, their gaze fixed on Jesus in the most holy place. So they're saved from papal delusions. The papacy is prepared for two classes of mankind, which embraces nearly the whole world. One, those who would be saved by their merits. And two, those who would be saved in their sins. Now here's the secret of its power. This quote can be found in the Great Controversy, page 572. Let us see how God's message 
in the sanctuary is the preparation to keep us from yielding to these two ideas. So consider this matter of those who would be saved in their sins. How clearly this message shows that if a man is going to find salvation, he must come to the sanctuary where that law is. He must meet the law. He must repent. He must give up his transgressions and put them on the Lamb. Then he must come back on the Day of Atonement and join in heart-searching and afflicting the soul and watch outside the sanctuary while the high priest goes in and sprinkles the blood in the most holy place. He, what he's describing here is what happened in the earthly sanctuary. And we, by faith, follow Christ in there. And he's doing it, but he doesn't have to actually present any real blood because he only had to die once for sin. He just presents it in words to his father. My blood, father, my blood, he says. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. That's Leviticus 16.30. So the sanctuary service shows that God intends to deliver his people from sin. He is going to get rid of sin forever. This program that the Church of Rome offers to people of sinning and doing penance, sinning and doing penance, is not the gospel. And the Protestant version of it is not the gospel. Now beware of the idea that all there is to the gospel is to be sure to keep your sins confessed. Thank God there's something more than merely pardon. There's power. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. Romans 1.16 But watch. If you and I have some darling sins that we would like to hold on to, if we have some weakness of the flesh that we would like to excuse, the devil has a snare all ready for us, either in the papacy or in one of these daughters of the harlot that drink the same wine and echo the same message. We will find something with mighty power that will sweep people off their feet, and we will say, this is the great power of God. This gives me peace. This gives me release from the conflict. I don't have to fight and struggle anymore. All I have to do is simply believe in Jesus and I'll be saved. The Lord knows that I am weak. And so even though I keep on sinning, that'll be a way for me. There'll be a way for me. This subtle deception is what millions are believing today. Now see what a subtle deception it is? Because so much of it sounds right, doesn't it? There's a flaw in there. There's a fly in the ointment. So we've been warned on this point. No man can cover his soul with the garments of Christ's righteousness while practicing known sins or neglecting known duties. God requires the entire surrender of the heart before justification can take place. In other words, justification is when his blood covers us and cleanses us from sin and pays our debt. He won't pay our debt until we have surrendered our heart entirely to him repented and turned from sin as far as we are able to do so. In order for us to retain this justification, there must be continual obedience through active living faith that works by love and purifies the soul. You can find this quote in First Selected Messages, page 366. Let no man present the idea that man has little or nothing to do in the great work of overcoming for God does nothing for man without his cooperation. Never leave the impression on the mind that there's little or nothing to do on the part of man, but rather teach man to cooperate with God that he may be successful in overcoming. One Selected Message, page 381. And then this wonderful statement on page 382 that exalts the merits of Jesus. 
and yet makes clear the place of works. The first part of it we often hear quoted. The last part, not so much. But we need both. Let's hear it. When it is in the heart to obey God, when efforts are put forth to this end, Jesus accepts this disposition and effort as man's best service, and he makes up for the deficiency with his own divine merit. Okay, But he will not accept those who claim to have faith in him and yet are disloyal to his Father's commandments. We hear a great deal about faith, but we need to hear a great deal more about works. Many are deceiving their own souls by living in easygoing, accommodating, crossless religion. Every man has a cross. One Selected Messages, page 382. Do you see the warning? Babylon today is going pell-mell after this easy religion. All you do is come to the altar, make a decision for Christ, and claim that Jesus has accepted you and go on your way. Don't worry. Just have peace. There's a grain of wheat and a bushel of chaff in that, my friends. Oh, how much we need that view of the most holy place. How much we need to see the ark with the testament in it. Recognize the judgment is set. The books are opened. And our lives will be measured by that law. Remember, we're saved by faith, but we are rewarded according to our works. And our works show whether we have any faith. And... That's how we can be rewarded. If our faith is flawed, uh, our works will show it, and that will show that our faith wasn't real. How much we need to lay hold of the glorious fact that the plan of salvation contemplates our complete recovery from the power of sin. What a message we have. The power is there in the most holy place. Yes. There's a verse about that, about uh, faith without the power thereof. I'd like to look that up. Maybe you could look it up yourself. I think it's going to be a very telling verse. But now, on the other hand, notice that statement that the Roman church is prepared for those who would be saved by their merits. Oh, what a laborious system of works is in the Roman Catholic ritual. What a massive ceremony, penance, sackcloth, and ashes, and all the rest. And there is a Protestant counterpart of that. It can creep right into our own midst, into our own hearts. The idea that something we have done or can do will save us, but it's a lie of the enemy. Luther long struggled with that thought. Finally, when the glorious light of justification by faith broke upon his soul, notice it's justification by faith, the just shall live by faith. It's not righteousness by faith. We are not righteous because we have faith. We can be justified because we have faith. It broke upon his soul. What peace he experienced. It's the thing that burdened Wesley as he sought righteousness. The very word Methodist came from their methodical lives. They were seeking, you see, to have everything just right. Read in Great Controversy the chapter on later English reformers and see the struggle that Wesley had and the light that broke upon his soul. Our very desire to reach the standard of perfection, our, our very efforts to keep God's law, can lead us into this snare of the enemy to depend upon our merits. There are conscientious souls that trust partly to God and partly to themselves. They do not look to God to be kept by his power, but depend upon watchfulness against temptation, the performance of certain duties for acceptance with him. They must have their prayers every day at a certain time and read so many chapters in the Bible, or they have a guilt complex. That's Romanism. My friends, there is no victories in this kind of faith. 
Such persons toil to no purpose. Their souls are in continual bondage and they find no rest until their burdens are laid at the feet of Jesus. You can read that in One Selected Messages, page 353. So I just want to expound on that just a tiny bit. And that is that there aren't just two ways, either by faith or by works, by faith alone or by works. No, the way is in the middle. It's both of them together. We have faith in Jesus that he can give us the power to obey. And he will, and he does. But we have to always remember and continually ask him, and he'll continually be with us. And how is the sanctuary the answer to this problem? Okay, we look up there and we see not merely a law, we see a mercy seat. And we see not merely a standard, we see a great high priest bearing our nature and the nature of the deity, lifting his wounded hands, sprinkling the blood upon the mercy seat, saying this, lifting his wounded hands, that's his way of doing it. He just lifts his hands. He doesn't actually sprinkle real blood. Okay. We know that our entrance there is through his name. We know that our victory is through his blood. We do not scale down the standard to meet our poor efforts, but we trust in all that all prevailing name, Jesus. Thank the Lord. The false revivals will not move us as long as our anchor is cast within the veil. Paul speaks of those who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Flee where? Whither the forerunner is for us, said Trude, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 6, 18 and 20. Remember Melchizedek. He, um, he was a high priest of God, and it was in Salem, which later on became the place for Jerusalem. But Melchizedek, they, he didn't have any record of his parents because, um, and I guess uh, Francois Duplessis talks about this in one of his archaeological videos on YouTube, and uh, that once a king overtook a new city and moved there and established it, the records there would not show his parents or his lineage. And so that's what happened to Melchizedek. He, he had taken that city, and so there was no records there of his parents. And um, he, as long as he lived, he was a high priest. It didn't pass to somebody else, like Levi it would pass to somebody else and somebody else, their children and such. And Jesus was like that. There, he's never going to pass to anybody else. He's always will be our high priest, thank the Lord. So um, instead of imbibing the wine of Babylon... So that was Hebrews 6, 18 and 20. Instead of imbibing the wine of Babylon, instead of filling our minds with the ideas which are flooding the religious press today, I beseech you, let us turn to Hebrews and Revelation and Leviticus and Daniel. Let us turn to great controversy and early writings. Let's fill our minds with the glorious truths of the sanctuary which made and keep us a peculiar people. It made us a peculiar people. It will keep us a peculiar people. Why are we peculiar? Because we're kind of odd. Uh, a lot of people refer to us as perhaps the uh, the lunatic fringe. <laughs> and uh, maybe we are. <laughs> and I don't care. Titles are six and stones may break my bones. Words will never hurt me. Um, doesn't matter as long as I please Jesus. Let's fill our minds with the glorious truths. Fix our eyes on Jesus in the most holy place. We shall be kept from the deceptions which will take the world captive. We'll have protection there, dear Lord. We thank thee. 
that the temple of God is opened in heaven. As we look, we not only see a holy law which beckons us to perfection, but we see a great high priest that has given his precious life to bring us to perfection. And we are confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in us will finish it until the day of Jesus Christ. And we thank thee in his name. Amen. We only have one more chapter of this book. We'll finish it next Sunday. It's titled The Remedy, and I believe it'll be very helpful. God bless you today, brothers and sisters. I'll see you tomorrow morning anyways.